Hello, everyone, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gib. We have received many, many, many emails, I think kind of as we expected, Gabe, on the topic of toxic masculinity in the wake of what was a very long interview with Sterling Cooper, an influencer who posts toxic masculinity content online. We aired that episode in full not long ago. It's also a YouTube video. That's that right. It's not, you can also watch that interview. I think it's, it's one that's way better to watch. Uh-huh. You, you can see a lot more of the dynamics that are happening during that discussion. Yeah, you can also see our studio, see where we are when we do these podcasts, Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, again, that's YouTube, and the YouTube channel is DW Podcasts. Worth checking out if you have time, but again, we have emails. Let's get to the emails. What do you got? Um, really nice one. Very long. Can't read all of it. It's from Laura, mm-hmm. and she writes in to say, basically, look, I never write anyone, ever, yeah. When I listen to content. Uh, but she says that she believes this is the second time that she's writing us. And she says, basically, she wants to applaud both of us. I don't know if you read that part, Gabe. Uh, we did something she would not have been able to do. She says she would have gotten too emotional sitting across from a guy like that. Um, and that she feels, based on that interview, that there is absolutely no way to break down the wall of beliefs that this guy has uh, based on that conversation that he's, he's entrenched too far. Um, one of the parts I liked a lot is that it's entrenched too far. Uh, one of the things she adds here toward the end of the email is that she says, I do believe you can tell what toxic masculinity is doing to society by looking at the statistics of violence against women. I think, Gabe, that's something you referenced either in that show or, or in a previous show about toxic masculinity. That was a study by the German Interior Ministry. Um, in the last year, it has risen 8.5% domestic disputes, and over 90% of those is where a, a man is physically abusing a woman. So it's on the rise. Uh, we can here say in Germany. here in Germany. Absolutely. Exactly. She goes on to say, I'm not a scholar or a researcher. I'm just a minimum wage worker whose job is so brainless that I get to spend all my time deeply thinking about other things while working. And the last part I'll read here, she says, please keep doing what you're doing. It is worth something. It is important. So we are very happy to have reached you, Laura, with that topic and very happy that you wrote us. We've also got an email here from Tanya. Said, uh, hello, Gabe and Connor. I wanted to specifically thank you two for tackling the issue of toxic masculinity. I thought that was very brave of you, two men wanting to take on this topic, and to invite one of the promoters onto your show to get a feel for how he thinks. Again, bravo to the two of you. And then she writes, I can relate to this experience. I had a personal trainer um, who morphed during my tenure with him, and she describes how over time he became more and more toxic, but eventually was able to get away from him, but that it was very hard to do that. Thanks for sharing, Tanya, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Not not all the emails or, or messages we received were positive. We knew that going into it. It's not only a difficult, controversial topic, it's, it's hard to know how to talk about it best. Gabe, there was one, I believe a couple who, who, who wrote into us at one point saying that one of the, one of the, yeah, one of them had stopped listening or couldn't listen anymore. Yeah, they were they were so irritated that they had to turn it off. Or I, I believe it was Sandra and Richard. And Sandra said that her husband couldn't couldn't continue watching, couldn't stand it. Um, and then Sandra had words, I think, at the end of her email. If I can pull it up real quick. 
Yeah, okay, so your interviewee was completely delusional. His views may end up causing a great deal of distress. Women are the main victims of his beliefs, but sadly many male lives will also be ruined. And that was an important point that we tried to make during that show. Again, the idea, successfully or not, was to confront you, our listeners, with, with what this really sounds like. I don't know if you live in the same bubble that... I kind of do, or Gabe does, or I think a lot of people do, where this is happening somewhere on the internet, but we don't really see it or hear it or aren't really forced to confront it. Mm-hmm. And by forcing ourselves to confront it and forcing you to kind of confront it, I think it's helpful to start to learn how to deflect that, or not deflect, how to how to deal with that, that argumentation style. A lot of which in that particular case was to change the subject or to talk about something else or to, to, to not answer the, the question. That I, that I thought we were asking again and again, do you see why some people view this as problematic? No, no. No, no, I don't. He didn't. <laughs> yeah, not all the comments were in favor. If you do go to our YouTube channel, again, it's DW Podcasts on YouTube. You'll see a couple of comments in there. One of them referring to us as um, not real men, that we are soy boys was mm. the insult. Well, sorry versions of man. You are, are quite sorry versions of man. Yeah, you're a soy boy. And I just want to say, I know that soy boy is used as a pejorative. It's a negative. It's an insult. You are an emasculated man or... Because you drink soy milk instead of cow milk? That's where it comes from. And I just want to divulge that I do drink soy milk. I'm a soy boy. I really like soy milk. I think it tastes delicious. And I would love to know what the right version of man is. (laughs) The commenter, if you're listening to this broadcast right now and you know... What what is the what is the right version of man? Please let me know. At least <laughs> we're trying to figure it out. Okay, on to some science. Uh, this science comes to you from the Max Planck Institute, uh, the huge scientific research institution or network here in Germany. And this one, what it really comes down to for me is Gabe. You'll remember. Do you remember when you were a kid? Mm. And hopefully you were outside a lot with your friends, playing in the neighborhood. And uh, sure. especially this time of the year, it starts to get dark. And yeah, then all I love of a sudden, the smell of autumn, the leaves, everything great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going there with it, but I, I, I like that too. Okay. Great. <laughs> it could be summer. It doesn't matter. You're out there, you're out scrounging around doing something with your friends. And a door opens up, and there's this voice, and it's like, Dinner. Yeah. And one kid from the group turns and runs home. And the reason that happens is because that voice even though it was a single word with two syllables, was clearly identifiable to everyone in the group as belonging to a very specific human being, right? Yeah. His dad. Or mom. Or mom. Yeah. Yelling that it's dinner time. Sure. And, and no other information is necessary. And that makes us surprisingly unique, we human beings, the ability to, to, do, to do that. That's called voice print. Okay. People have a unique voice print to the extent that it could be a crowd of 500 people, yeah. and you have a vo- this, this voice comes out, and you're like, ah, that's Jenny. That's my mom. That's Greg. That's Frankie. And that's, I'm running out of names here. Frankie, but... that's the name of my, my brother's dog. So. Is it really? Mm-hmm. That's a good name. Mm-hmm. So humans can do voice printing, or we can identify humans just by the print or the sound of their voice very clearly. Other animals cannot do that. So Okay, so that makes us unique to the animals. Unique comp- when compared to animals. Okay. So according to the Max Planck Institute, I'm going to trust them on this one. Mm-hmm. Other animals like dolphins or bats or even birds do something very different. And what they do is their very first... Well, they don't have voices to begin with. It's, well, they have something... They have different yeah, clicks and yeah. sounds. Yeah. They have something that's called a signature call. 
So this, if I if I understand it correctly, would be like a human being. It could be a yodel, the, like the very first thing that you do that clearly <laughs> identifies that that human. Yeah. Or I think the easier way to think about it, it would be like announcing your name, right at the very beginning of everything. Yeah, like at the beginning of the show. Yeah, Turner and Gabe. Yeah, that's true. We do that at the beginning of the show, and it'd be like if that same parent were to come out and be like, Brian, to announce that I, Brian, am talking. <laughs> Brian, dinner, right? And that Brian's important for everyone to even know that it's Brian, right? Yeah. That would be the equivalent with animals. So the question in their study was, how does it work with an animal that is one of the best, if not the best, at language in the way that we kind of understand language? And that is the parakeet, in this case, the monk parakeet. Monk parakeet. Yeah, so I will go ahead and play. I think most people kind of have a vague idea what this sounds like. Here's a clip from one of my favorite... Monk parakeets. <laughs> yes, one of my favorite monk parakeets. Right, not much for us to discern there. Yeah, but if you were a monk parakeet, you would be able to... You, that, if you knew that sound, you would know that that sound is coming from that specific animal? Based on this research, we don't have the answer to that yet. But th that was kind of the question they were trying to figure out. If you have monk parakeets, and a lot of them, and they're all chattering away, they, have to, they, they need to be able to figure out who's saying what. Otherwise, it's just a cacophony. You can, yeah. it, what, what is going on here? Everyone's saying all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so the assumption was, well, guess, you know what? I bet that they are like other animals. They must have a signature call. They must say David or Joanna mm -hmm. as the very first thing to, say, to announce, I'm the one who's talking now. So when I say these words, it's connected to me, okay. this, this parakeet. Yeah. And so they went to an area where they have the highest number of, I guess, banded uh, monk parakeets. So they have an identifiable band. You can figure out, okay, that, that no, one which is... one made that noise? Yeah. yeah, 2,000 of them. You know where that area is? Um, Rio de Janeiro. Barcelona. Okay. <laughs> of, of, of all places. Barcelona, Spain. And it's because the Museum of Natural Sciences over years has been tagging these things. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's 20 years that they've been doing this. And sorry, 3,000 birds, not 2,000 birds. Okay. All these birds, so they went out there and they recorded 5,000 uh, separate audio files where they, that they clearly connected to that bird. Like that, that bird A23 is doing the talking and this is what it's saying. And they had multiple recordings of those individual birds so they could connect them to the birds. Surprisingly... Did they play the sound to the birds and see which one came? Uh, that... Would have been interesting, but there are ethics rules about doing that. Okay. In fact, this website that I got that audio from that I love, Zeno Canto, and by the way, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I love it so much because that, that monk parakeet that I got the noise from was from Barcelona. They've got a map and you can find them. And I downloaded that audio, but they have rules about, like, like you're not supposed to lure birds in with fake bird calls. Okay. Because think how confusing that is for a bird. Like, no, I, I know I heard I a bird. I swear I just, yeah. And instead there's a man with like a dish. What what's happening? So you don't do that. What they did was, can we find a signature call? Something that would be like announcing your name to let the others know I'm the one who's doing the, the talking. To their surprise, nothing. Nothing identifiable. You could not say who's talking when. So then they thought, okay, there must be something that's more like voice printing, the way we humans do it. And so they put it into the systems, ran some machine learning tools through it. Again, kind of complex, but the tools then if you were to take one of those bird files, put it back into the software and say, who's doing the talking? 
it was three times better than random at figuring out the answer, which is an indication of it being possible for there to be some sort of voice printing. Huh. Because this, this, this software is starting to be able to do it, yeah. which indicates it is possible. It's possible that these birds... There is something unique about the sound. Yeah, and what's also interesting... Compared to the, all the other thousands of sounds. Correct. And yeah. that, that clip I played for you, last thing I'll say on this topic, is one of, like a lot of birds, they have very different kinds of sounds, maybe a half dozen or a dozen different things they can do. Mm -hmm. And the same effect was true when they jumped between sounds. So they have a growling sound, these monk parakeets that they can do. And they also have a tonal sound. And the, the software could still distinguish between them and say, no, no, that's probably coming from that bird over there. So the suspicion at this point is that parakeets, monk parakeets in this case, at least the ones in Barcelona, Spain, are able to, to understand the equivalent of someone yelling, dinner time, and to know exactly which bird is saying that and whether they have to pay attention to that information. Uh, that Despite would be, the cacophony. Yeah, yeah which, which is, is new, as I understand it, or relatively new. Uh, there haven't been many studies like this when it comes to animals communicating with each other. Yeah. Quick question. Do you have a tattoo? No. No. Why not? Um, whew. I think if you get one, it's easier to have, get 20. But that, that threshold for that very first one, I, I'm, it's... What, are, what, are you, what thoughts do you connect with having a tattoo? Okay, my, my first real thought was that I, uh, I translated a book from German into English by a guy here in Germany named Mark Benecke. He's a criminal entomologist he looks at bugs and one of his books he's tattooed he goes on he's on german tv all the time be, partially because he's tattooed you instantly recognize him yeah and his book a different book i didn't translate it was called why people with tattoos have more sex hmm. that, so and i didn't read that book i don't know what the answer is but my connection with tattoos is that um it says something about you in a way that's bigger than the actual tattoo itself it's about your lifestyle it's yeah. about what you're open to or not open to it's about how uh, how impulsive or spontaneous maybe you are or, or risk-taking like you might be you here's might... A, well here's a study based on an unbelievable trove of data out of the US 40,000 participants who began filling out this or this longitudinal survey in 1994 five waves of questioning all the way to wow. 2018 and it was for, they were looking into criminological data. And so they were comparing, you know, how many of these people ended up getting arrested, um, being convicted, being incarcerated. And they also had information about whether they had a tattoo. And if you had a tattoo and you're a man, it was two times, 2.5 times more likely that you had been arrested, 1.8 times more likely that you had been convicted of a crime. And over twice as likely that you were in prison with a tattoo. And it was controlled for other things like self-reported delinquency and self-reported problems with self-control. So it's just, it's just the stigma. It's the, they're, they're, trying to it's, go, they're trying to go from correlation to as close to causation as yeah. they can here. Well, by weeding out the other things that would lead to being arrested or convicted or imprisoned. Yeah. Two and a half times more likely if you're a man. If you're a woman, 1.7 times higher odds of being arrested. 1.68 times higher odds of being convicted and 1.9 times higher of being imprisoned. So what they're trying to say is, by eliminating the self-reported delinquency, it's not that I get a tattoo and either because of my behavior before that or after that, I'm more likely to go into jail. It's more that 
I have a tattoo, and hence, if a police officer yeah. sees me, well, I'm more likely to be arrested and then convicted and then sent to jail. What is stigma, right? Stigma is a characteristic, characteristic about yourself that makes it more likely that people will discriminate against you. And this, in this case, it would be discrimination by the police, by the criminal justice system because of the tattoo. A tattoo makes you different than the rest of society. It's well, becoming less and less um, different as well, time goes on, I think, probably. But still, there is, it still is a stigma. When we walked into the studio today, we've got a studio tech here. I asked him what he thinks. What do you think when you see someone with a tattoo? He says, criminal, yeah, maybe a murderer. <laughs> I think he might have been joking because he then added that his daughter has a tattoo. But And I don't think she's a criminal or a murderer. <laughs> as well, far you as never I understand know. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, no, but that's that, what that that would be the direction. That would be what this study out of Kazakhstan and Florida State University. We're weird part, partnership really? there, but yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, one thing that I think you can possibly say because obviously it, it seems like the takeaway is that if I get a tattoo, police are more likely to arrest me and then I'm going to go to jail. It's also if and I'm basing this embarrassingly on TV shows like CSI mm. uh, and criminal identification shows, you, a lot you you just see that a lot. I think where the tattoo is the defining characteristic that yeah. allows the arrest and conviction to happen. That that was one caveat of the study. Um, that there was no information about w- how big the tattoo was that these True. people had. True. Where it was, how was it visible? So you'd you'd need more information. But this. Then it, it's too, the numbers are too high, two and a half times more likely to be arrested if you're a man. One point seven times. That's there's something going on there, for sure. Do you have a tattoo? No. <laughs> what do you think I am, a murderer? <laughs> would you? Would you get one? Do you want one? There. It seems like a lot more people. I feel like have them today than I don't know in the in the 1990s. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get one. No. No. Would you get one, our listeners out there, based on what we have just said? I mean, we've basically thrown the idea of getting tattooed completely under the bus. You're putting yourself more at risk of of incarceration. And if you would get one, what would you get? And where would you get it? How big would it be? Yeah. And if you have one, where is it? And how do you feel about it today? That's a question I'm I'm not... And are you a criminal? (laughs) How many of our listeners are criminals? SU at DW.com.